Scripture passage for today is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Um, I think in the Pew Bible it's page 4. And um, read along with me as I read God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as the lead pastor here. And uh, if you are newer, we'd love to connect with you, uh, as Matt said, after the worship gathering right back there in that room. We'd love to just get to know you a little bit. So uh, hope to see you there. As we come to this passage today, uh, would you join me, as always, in a word of prayer? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
Lord, with the psalmist today, we do ask that you would create in us a pure heart. With the psalmist, we recognize the sin, the transgressions, the rebellion against you that exists in our lives. And Lord, we recognize also our great need for your mercy and for your forgiveness for you to cover that sin, for you to wash it away. And so we ask, Lord, that this morning as we hear and meditate on this passage of Scripture that you would encourage us. We ask that you would teach us, that you would help us to rightly understand the dynamics of sin in our lives and in our world. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us great hope. Give us great hope in your son Jesus and what he has done for us. Create in us a pure heart, O oh God. Amen. A couple months ago, my wife and I had some car troubles. She went to uh, drop off some items at a friend's house who was having a garage sale. We were putting some things in their sale. And she went over, she unloaded the car, she got back in the car, and then when she went to go turn the key, all she heard was just a rapid clicking noise which if you are around cars much, you know that this is not the kind of thing <laughs> that you want to hear when you go to start your car. So obviously it didn't start. And of course, this sort of launched us into this sort of troubleshooting phase, trying to identify what is it that is wrong with the car. Usually a clicking noise like that has something to do with the battery. So we had the battery tested and the test came back and said, your battery is just fine. And we didn't really believe them. So we brought it to a different place and had them test the battery and the battery was just fine. And then we bought a new battery and installed it in the car, and that didn't solve it. So we returned that battery, got our old one back, put it back in. I replaced the starter in the car, and that did not work. Eventually, we found out that there, are, uh, there were two grounding wires that come off of the battery that mount to the frame of the car. And one of those, even though it looked pretty normal, uh, when you looked closely, you could see that it had some corrosion on it. And so what that was doing was it was uh, keeping the charge from going to the battery to, to the starter to be able to actually give it enough power to start the engine. So we ended up figuring out what it was, and I guess in the end, the good news is that I learned how to replace a starter at the same time, which is not what I was hoping to learn how to do, um, but it was an old starter and needed to be replaced anyways. So I'm sure you've experienced something like this in your life. Some situation where you had to troubleshoot, maybe at work, maybe a house project that you had, maybe with your own vehicle. Uh, some of you uh, are probably the type of people that if something's wrong with your car, you're just like, who can I pay to take care of this for me? Uh, usually that's how we are. Uh, but this one, I was like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this thing. I'm going to solve it. <laughs> when we experience those troubleshooting kinds of moments, uh, what becomes clear to us is something that I think we all know and understand. And that is that if you can't identify the root of a problem, you're not going to be able to identify or implement any kind of solution. If you can't identify actually what the thing is that is wrong at the core of it, at the root of it, you can't identify or implement any kind of a solution. We're in a series of messages, as you can see on the screen here, titled Gospel Foundations. And what we're doing is we are looking at the essentials of the gospel by looking at the story of the gospel as it's given to us in Scripture. Uh, the, the gospel is not primarily given to us just as sort of a one-liner, but it's given to us as the story, the narrative of God's work in history, the good news about his saving actions, and we see that story told throughout the Bible. 
And so we've been looking at who God is, and we saw who we are created in God's image. And today, we get to talk about the subject of sin, which is not exactly the most thrilling thing. <laughs> I don't suspect that if, uh, that if you maybe knew that this was going to be talked about today, some of you may have been like, you know, I think I'll just stay home. <laughs> I'll just stay home today. But here we are in the same room, so let's just make the most of it. We all have a deep sense that something is not right with humanity. We've all got a deep sense of that, that something is not right. There's not a single person that looks around the world and says, you know, I can't really think of any ways that this could be better than it is right now. Everybody can see, can sense that there is something wrong with the world and wrong with humanity. Now, obviously, it's easier for us to identify what's wrong in other people, right? The people that we would say are the other, them. So whether that's people who come from a different background, from a different culture, from a different religious tradition, who have different political viewpoints than you do, it's so easy to look at other people and say, yeah, that's what's wrong with the world. And at the same time, we all also have a sense of there's something not right inside of each of us. And maybe the reason, part of the reason why the world is the way it is today is not just because of people like them, however we define them, but maybe part of the reason why the world is the way it is today is because I'm in the world. We've all got a sense of that. And so we're all sort of in the same place being faced with the question, what is wrong with humanity? What's the root of the problem here? And this is a question that is very, very important for us to answer and answer well and answer correctly. What the Bible says about sin, I believe, is uh, what it does is it explains the world that we see in the best way. And by that I mean that when you look at what the Bible says about what is wrong with the world and you look at humanity and you look at our world as it actually exists, you say, okay, yeah, this seems to make the best explanation of the world that we see. But not only does the Bible just point out and give us sort of the, the problem, what the Bible does is the Bible offers us hope and it offers us a solution. And so we're going to be looking at that solution today as well as something of uh, the, the nature of sin. So what we're going to do today is I'd like to just make two observations as we look at this text and see where this fits into the story of the Bible. So the first observation I'd like to begin making with you today is this, God is loving and generous. Okay, this is, this is where we have to start because we just have to uh, keep this in mind that the Bible does not start in Genesis 3 with the fall. It doesn't start in Genesis 3 with sin. It starts in Genesis 1 by telling us about who God is. And if we look at the first chapters of the Bible, what we see is that God is loving. God is generous. God is abundant. God is overflowing with creativity and goodness. And his world is good. We as human beings have not even begun to fathom, we've not even begun to scratch the surface of understanding the mystery and the complexity and the danger and the beauty of the world that God has created and the scope and the magnitude of the universe that we find ourselves in. And what that shows us is it reveals something to us about the bigness and the creativity and the love and the generosity of God. He's a God who's created us as an overflow of his divine, triune, inexhaustible love. And so we see this is who God is. We also see God creates human beings in his image. He creates human beings in his image, which means that we have a unique status and dignity as people who are created in God's image. It doesn't mean that we necessarily physically look like God, but that we represent God, that we have a unique dignity and status that God has given us. 
We also see in those opening chapters of the Bible that God has not only given us a unique dignity and status, he's also given us a unique uh, calling, a unique vocation to partner with him, to be co-rulers over his created world, to be wise stewards of the resources that are around us, and this is all a part of what it means that we are created in God's image. So we see who God is, we see who we are, we see that God has created his world, he's created us in such a way he's given us everything we need to be truly satisfied and to truly flourish. That's the picture of who God is that we get from those first few chapters of the Bible, and it's essential Especially as we talk about the subject of sin, we have to keep sin in the broader storyline. We have to understand it in relationship to what the Bible says about who God is. Because the Bible doesn't start with sin, it starts with God. And so we have to start by recognizing and just sort of relishing in the character and the nature of who God is as he's revealed to us in those first pages of the Bible. So we see God is overflowing with love and generosity, he's not stingy. He didn't put humans in the garden to trick them or to trap them. He's overflowing with inexhaustible triune love. That's who he is. And so we begin there. We see not only the love uh, that God is loving and generous, we also see as we come specifically to Genesis chapter 3 that sin is foolish and costly. And we see this in stark contrast to, we've just seen this beautiful picture of who God is, and then we come to Genesis 3 and it's like, Ew, that is so ugly and it's so costly. And it sort of makes it pop off the page for us if we are reading with a clear picture in our mind of who God is. So look with me in Genesis 3, chapter, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice what the serpent does here is he immediately begins by distorting and twisting the words of God. God had told the people, told Adam and Eve the exact opposite. I've given you every tree in the garden except the one. And he says, and you can sort of hear his tone here, can't you? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You know, sort of mockingly asking this question. And he's asking this question in such a way that it sort of uh, it's, it's designed to make her think and to question, well, what did God actually say? He's distorting, he's twisting the words of God. She responds in verse two by saying, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So she affirms what God had actually said. And of course, people have noticed here for a long time that she adds this little phrase about we can't even touch it. And some people have looked at that and tried to, you know, I think we should be careful not to criticize her for saying that. I think what that reveals is her understanding of the significance and the magnitude of God's command not to eat from that tree. She recognizes how significant it is, and so she sort of adds that, yeah, we're not even supposed to touch it. She's trying to back away from that tree as far as she can possibly get. So that's what she says. The serpent then responds in verse 4, again, by saying, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So the serpent begins by distorting and twisting the words of God, trying to get her to sort of question what God said. And then secondly, he just outright contradicts the words of God. He just outright denies them and says, you will not certainly die. In fact, your eyes are going to be opened. You think that when you eat that piece of fruit, your life is going to end? 
No, the opposite is true. When you eat that piece of fruit, your life at that moment will actually begin. So in the same way that a person who's blind, their eyes are open, they receive an entire new dimension to life. The serpent is saying, you're basically living in darkness right now. You're living in blindness. God is holding back on you. God is stingy. God does not have your best interests in mind. There's something else you need, and once you have it, your life will never be the same, which was actually very true. But at this moment, she begins to believe the lie that in order to experience true life, in order to experience true joy and true flourishing, she needed something more than what God had provided. That's what in this moment she began to believe. And as we think about this again, in light of what the Bible has already told us from Genesis 1 and 2 about who God is, we should, we're supposed to read Genesis 3 and think to ourselves, how unbelievably foolish of you to ever think that God was holding back on you, to think that God is stingy, to think that God doesn't have your best interests in mind. Look around you at what God has created. He's given you everything that you need for joy and life and flourishing. And we're supposed to have a, just sit with a sense of how unbelievably, catastrophically foolish it is to believe the lie that God is holding back on us. But she does. And we see something here in the text then of how foolish sin is, but we also then see something about how costly it is. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I think it's really important that we just pause here and observe that the very first thing that happened when their eyes were opened was that they tried to cover their nakedness. The very first thing they did was they recognized that they were naked. They were filled with shame. Now, again, if we've been reading Genesis, we'll see at the end of chapter 2, in verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And then you come here to Genesis 3, the eyes of them were opened, they realized they were naked, and they began to cover up. All of a sudden, they felt ashamed. They felt afraid of one another. They hid from one another. They hid from God in the bushes. They blamed other people for their own actions. But I think it's critical that we see the first thing they did was they felt shame, and they tried to cover it up. So at this point in the story of the Bible, what we see is that there is something that is deeply corrupted inside of the human heart because of this revolt against God, because of this sin that they committed. And the outward expression of it, the way that it works its way out, is that they now have actions that are characterized by self-protection and self-preservation. That's what they do. They hide from God, they hide from one another, all of a sudden, something has shifted. Something has changed. Fundamentally, something different is happening inside of their hearts, and they think that they need to hide. This is what we see them doing. They're scrambling. They're frantic. 
Now, this same poison that was unleashed into the heart of Adam and Eve here is the same poison that exists inside of every single human being who's lived ever since that time. It's the same exact poison that was unleashed. There's something deeply corrupted inside of every single human heart, and we instinctively, we don't have to be taught to do this, we instinctively live lives characterized by self-protection and self-preservation. We look out for ourselves, and oftentimes at the expense of other people. And some of you have done that, some of you have experienced that, and it's, and it's awful. What happened to them was their eyes were opened and they were covered with shame. We experience, we are covered with that same, with that same shame that they experience. And like them, we too spend our lives creating little garments out of fig leaves. We spend our whole lives trying to cover up the shame and the nakedness that we feel. We spend our lives doing all kinds of things to prove that we are okay. If I could only fill in the blank, then I would know that I'm okay. If I, can only, if I could only look a certain way, if I could only have a certain body type, if I could only sort of arrange the exteriors of my life to make myself look this way or that way, then I would know I'm okay. If I can only achieve my goals, if I can only achieve these certain milestones, maybe in my family, maybe in my vocation, if I can only prove that I am excellent, if I can only prove that I'm competent, that I'm better than other people, that I'm the best at what I do, that maybe I'm better than I was last year or last week, if I can only prove that I'm the best athlete, that I'm the smartest student, if I can only prove that I'm competent, that I'm excellent, then I will know that I am okay. If I can only get the approval of other people, if I can only have my coworkers really like me, if only I could get my, my boss to approve of me, my friends and my neighbors and my family, my children, if my children could just grow up to be productive members of society, my goodness, then I would know that I'm okay. If I can just get my kids to like me, then I would know that I'm okay. If I can just get a, find a spouse, if I can just, if I can just, if I can just, if I can just... And this is the human condition, is that we live in a state of continually sewing together fig leaves that are just going to wilt, that are just going to die, that are just going to fall off, that are just going to leave us four days from now feeling the same emptiness that we felt before. But this is the human condition, that we've been trying to sew together fig leaves ever since this moment. Now, none of those things, basically none of those things I just mentioned, those are not bad things. And yet those are all things that cannot do what we ask them to do for us. They're all good gifts of God that we've distorted and twisted and we now look to to provide us with something they can never provide for us. We look to these things to remove our shame and they can't do it. They're not bad things. They're just things that are not ever going to be able to accomplish what we ask them to accomplish. And so we find ourselves, even though we create these fig leaf garments and we do it over and over and we recreate ourselves and we create more and more and more, even though we do that, we still live with the same deep sense of brokenness and corruption and shame. 
But the good news is this. The good news is that through Jesus, God has removed our shame. We see, this, we see the beginning of this. If we just look ahead a few verses in Genesis chapter 3 to verse 21, where after God uh, confronts the man and the woman, and as he pronounces judgment on them and judgment on the serpent, he also provides a promise that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. But he comes to Adam and Eve in verse 21, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Just imagine the, the tenderness of this moment where Adam and Eve are experiencing something that they have never experienced. They have no idea what's going on. All they know is it's awful. They're naked, they're ashamed, they're afraid of God, they're afraid of one another. And the Lord meets them in the midst of that desperation and shame and nakedness that they feel. And he provides them with something that will last much longer than the fig leaves that are just gonna dry and rot and fall off. So we see that initial moment where God meets them in their nakedness and vulnerability and he clothes them, he covers them. Remember the pattern that we see here with this first sin. Eve took the fruit, she gave it to her husband, they ate it, and their eyes were opened. Now fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is with two of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And his disciples are very despondent. They're very sad. And Jesus, who the story tells us uh, his, his identity was kept from them. They didn't know it was Jesus at the time. But Jesus comes to them and he says, hey guys, what's going on? And they're all like, have you been living under a rock? Are you the only person who doesn't know about all these things? And Jesus is like, what things? <laughs> and so they begin to tell the story of how we had hoped that this Jesus was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was our deliverer. We had hoped that God was going to use him, that he was going to be the military leader that we needed who could overthrow the Roman government and finally reestablish the nation of Israel the way that we wanted to be established. And we could return to the good old days of David and Solomon when the kingdom was big and when we were powerful and influential. But he got himself killed. And it's game over at that point. We'd invested ourselves in this man. We've invested our time. We've invested so much in this man, Jesus, and it turns out that he was a sham. In the end, he got himself killed. And there goes any of the hopes of Jesus being the person he said he was. And they're despondent. And then Jesus says to them, you're so foolish. Don't you know what the Bible says? And of course, the Bible is the Hebrew Bible that they have. Not the New Testament, but Jesus says, don't you know that this is what the Bible said all along? And he starts from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and he goes through the entire Bible and shows them, this is what had to happen. God's deliverer, God's Messiah, he had to suffer. This is, this is not God's plan B, this is God's plan A, was that his Messiah would come and suffer. They arrive at their destination, and Jesus is going to continue walking, and they, they beg him, they say, no, 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 please, please stay with us. And then we're told that Jesus, he, they sat down for a meal, okay? Jesus 
took bread, he gave it to them, they ate it, and what does the text say happened to them next? Their eyes were opened. Do you think this is Luke accidentally making this connection? Absolutely not. Luke is intentionally using this language to make a very, very clear and very important point. And the point is that Jesus is the antidote to the curse that was brought about through Adam and Eve. The antidote to the curse of sin was that their eyes were opened and they recognized that it was Jesus. They saw Jesus. And they say to themselves, that's why as we were listening to him tell us all of this stuff from the Old Testament about how, how God's Messiah had to suffer, that's why our hearts were burning within us. That's why we felt something inside of us we've never felt before. And they realized that it was Jesus. Their eyes were opened. And so in Jesus, you have the antidote. You have the reversal of the curse that was brought about through Adam and Eve. Where Adam and Eve failed. Where they disobeyed God. Where they were unfaithful to God. We see Jesus who came, who experienced all of the brokenness of the world that we live in and yet was without sin. He did not fail. He was obedient to God the Father. He delighted in him with his whole heart, mind, and strength. He suffered and he died. And it's through him that our shame has been removed. Our, our, our lives are covered in shame because of sin, but Jesus has removed that shame. And the way that Jesus did it was in the most unexpected way that, that nobody ever would have thought that it would have happened like this. Jesus has removed our shame by being publicly humiliated and shamed. Let me read to you from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Just listen to this and let this wash over your mind. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus was executed in the most painful and degrading and humiliating way that anybody had thought up, had dreamed up to that point in human history. Jesus was publicly shamed. And what was accomplished as Jesus hung on the cross and was publicly shamed, we read about that in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. 
He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So do you begin to see this now? Because of our shame, we are, because of our sin rather, we are covered in shame. Jesus came and was publicly shamed and humiliated for us. And what he accomplished as he was publicly shamed was that he shamed the rulers and the powers and the, the, the powers of darkness and the evil one. It, it looked like it was game over for Jesus. It looked like Jesus was the one being shamed and yet as Jesus hung on the cross naked for everybody to stare at him and mock him, it was him hanging on the cross. That was what, was, that was what crushed the head of the serpent. That was what covered our shame. That was what defeated the powers of darkness and put them to public shame. So it's through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that our shame is now removed. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent on the cross and as he rose from the dead, he proved that he was victorious even over sin and death and the evil one, that they indeed did not have any authority over him, that they indeed did not have any power over him and for all of us who would trust him by faith, who would give our allegiance to him, they have no power over us either. And Jesus has removed our shame. And so what this means for us is that we do not have to live in fear. We do not have to live with shame. We do not have to hide because there is someone who knows us deeper than we even know ourselves. And yet he loves us. He's proven that he loves us because he was willing to be publicly shamed and humiliated for us. He knows us more deeply than we know ourselves and he still loves us, which means we don't have to hide. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in shame. We don't have to spend our lives making these pathetic little fig leaf garments anymore. We don't have to live that way. What freedom we have in Jesus, because he has removed our shame. And so the question that I have for you today is, will you receive Jesus' shame-covering work? One of the ways that we say yes to this, time and time again, is we come to the communion table. And as we receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, that is a reminder to us that he was humiliated. He was publicly shamed for us. And yet we don't receive that with fear or trembling because we know that because it was his death that led to the shaming of the powers of darkness. And in him, our shame has been removed. And so we can gladly come to him. We can gladly commune with him. We can gladly receive him. And so every week when we come forward and we stand up, we physically walk forward, we say once again, yes, I will receive the shame-covering work of Jesus. As we come to the communion table today, I'd like to invite you to spend a few moments of silent confession and reflection, and then we will come receive Christ and celebrate him at the table.